Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. This week, you will hear the opening chapters of Gary DeMar's brand new book, Restoring the Foundation of Civilization. If you'd like to hear the rest of this audiobook, you can find it exclusively on the Canon app. Introduction Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, wrote the following concerning reports that he was seriously ill and near death. It was his cousin. The report of my death was an exaggeration. A similar thing can be said about Western civilization. It may be ill, but it's not dead. The enemies of Western civilization are on life support because they are using force to implement their ideology. This is a sign of illegitimacy, desperation, and failure to change people's minds by reasoned discussion. The Apostle Paul writes the following about the end point of unbelieving thought. They are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. But they will not make further progress. Their folly will be obvious to all. 2 Timothy 3, 7 and 9 Consider what was taking place in Louisville, Kentucky. An activist group was threatening Louisville business owners with possible repercussions if they failed to submit to their list of social justice-related demands. Felix Crittenden, who is allegedly the lead supply organizer for BLM Louisville Chapter, created a group called Blacks Organizing Strategic Success, BOSS. The group's demands included having a minimum of 23% black staff and purchasing a minimum of 23% inventory from black retailers or make a recurring monthly donation of 1.5% of net sales to a local black nonprofit or organization. Failure to comply would mean financial repercussions from BOSS that could shut down the non-complying businesses through boycott efforts and negative publicity by launching negative reviews and social media posts about the businesses. These types of actions are microcosm of a larger problem brought on by attempting to effect cultural change via a secular power religion. Christians must engage the culture. The main reason anti-Christian civilizationists survive, and seem to thrive, is that Christians have not built a competing alternative culture founded on the foundational principles found in God's Word and observable in His creation. Moreover, many Christians don't believe there can be or should be a Christian civilization, so they send their children off to the local government school that is anti-Christian, believing that facts are neutral and public education is free. Such thinking comes at a terrible cost. Actions taken by Christians can fix this problem by simple obedience to God's law. If wolves in sheep's clothing are a problem for the people of God, then what should we think of wolves who identify as wolves and want to supplant Christian civilization founded on the basis of materialist operating assumptions? It hasn't always been this way. Winston Churchill, for example, saw the Battle of Britain as a struggle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Upon this battle, Churchill said on the 18th of June, 1940, depends the survival of Christian civilization. Elements of a Christian civilization were observable and fault lines were noted and remedied. Christians have always challenged the world when it was deep in the stench of paganism and ideological darkness. In the past, 
Such conditions have brought out the best in the Christian worldview and those who extended it to the broader culture. Christianity infused the world with the light of the gospel and its call for the redemption of sinners and their sin-stained world. This vision of Christianity seems lost on many of today's Christians. Anti-Christians are killing off their future via abortion and choosing not to have children. Homosexuality and transgenderism, and all the other genderisms, are folly and self-destructive. When men and women are cutting off their genitals to identify as the opposite sex, we must ask whose civilization is coming to an end. There are many Christians who will not participate in civilization-building efforts that include areas like economics, journalism, politics, education, and science because they believe, or have been taught to believe, that they are outside the realm of what constitutes a Christian worldview. Politics is dirty. Jesus didn't get mixed up in politics. Politics is about law, and Christianity is about grace. Jesus is our Savior, not government. Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. The Christian's only task is to preach the gospel. We're living in the last days. And so many more myths. Politics is one government under God's government. The thing of it is, a biblical worldview includes politics, the civil dimension of biblical government, and everything else. The British poet and literary critic T.S. Eliot, 1888-1965, makes the point better than I can. Yet there is an aspect in which we can see a religion as the whole way of life of a people, from birth to the grave, from morning to night and even in sleep, and that way of life is also its culture. It is in Christianity that our arts have developed. It is in Christianity that the laws of Europe have, until recently, been rooted. It is against a background of Christianity that all our thought has significance. An individual European may not believe that the Christian faith is true, and yet what he says and makes and does will all spring out of his heritage of Christian culture and depend upon that culture for its meaning. If Christianity goes, the whole of our culture goes. The entire Bible speaks about the subjects of government and politics just like it speaks about everything else. Abraham Kuyper, 1837-1920, one-time Prime Minister of the Netherlands and Professor of Theology at the Free University of Amsterdam and editor of the daily newspaper The Standard, summarized this truth with these words, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Everything created by God is good, Genesis 1.31, and sin has not changed that truth, 1 Timothy 4, 1-4. If holiness means, Thou shalt not steal, for you and me, then it also means the same thing for you and me if we decide to become a civil governmental official. Politics, actually, civil government, is no more morally neutral territory than self, family, and church governments. If we follow the reasoning of some Christians, we can't speak out against civil ministers when they violate their oath to uphold the Constitution and violate some biblical law. For example, the specific law against man-stealing, Exodus 21.16, 1 Timothy 1.10, Revelation 18.13. 
Should we remain silent and passive when a husband violates his marriage oath or a minister of the gospel who violates his ordination vows? Of course not. There are procedures to deal with these violations. The same is true in the civil realm. It includes organizing people to oppose civil government rulers who violate the oath they took to uphold the Constitution and any other governing documents. If thieves break into your house and burn it down, what should you do? What if they beat and rape your wife and steal all your stuff? If the chief of police and the mayor don't do anything about it, are these non-involved Christians telling their fellow Christians that they should not protest but just take the persecution for righteousness' sake? Would an advocate for biblical justice be considered proud, pompous, and a powermonger to rally his neighbors to vote the mayor out of office in the next election? According to God's word, the civil magistrate has the power of the sword, Romans 13, 1-4. Without limits on the civil minister's authority and power, that sword can do a lot of harm to a lot of people, but it can also be a deterrent to criminal activity. I suppose as Christians like Coryton Boom, 1893-1983, and her family were being dragged off to a concentration camp for helping Jews escape from the Nazis, their fellow Christians should have told them, This is what you get for not being willing to be oppressed and disenfranchised for righteousness' sake. You should have made peace with the Nazis, not protest against them. Persecution is the Christian's lot in life. Revolutions never turn out well. If Christians had been involved in civilization-building efforts, including civil governments, decades before and understood the limits of unchallenged actions by those who work against a Christian civilization, Germany would never have had an Adolf Hitler. In 19th century Germany, a distinction was made between the realm of public policy managed by the state, civil government, and the domain of private morality. Religion was the sphere of the interpersonal life, while things public came under the jurisdiction of the worldly powers. Redemption was fully the province of the church, while the civil sphere was solely the province of the state. Religion was a private matter that concerned itself with the personal and moral development of the individual. The external order, nature, scientific knowledge, statecraft, operated on the basis of its own internal logic and discernible laws. Christians were told that the church's sole concern is the spiritual life of the believer. The Erlangen Church historian Hermann Jorda declared in 1917 that the state, the natural order of God, followed its own autonomous laws while the kingdom of God was concentrated with the soul and operated separately on the basis of the morality of the gospel. Sound familiar? We all want to change the world but there is a great deal of disagreement on how to do it without blowing it up. In years past, idealistic revolutionaries turned to pop culture icons like the Beatles for inspiration. For example, the People's Summit, held in Chicago during a Bernie Sanders rally when he was running for president in 2020, kicked off the meeting with the Beatles' song, Revolution. It was a laughable idea to anyone who knows how to read or listen to lyrics. Revolution is not what they think it is. It's a song expressing skepticism about changing society via revolution. Here are some of the lyrics. But when you talk about destruction, 
Don't you know that you can count me out? You say you got a real solution. Well, you know, we'd all love to see the plan. But if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. Rioting, killing, and burning may seem like a quick way to get results for social justice, but if history is any indicator, it's a bad methodology. Simon Bolivar, 1783-1830, a Venezuelan military and political leader, is reported to have said, Those who have served the cause of the revolution have plowed the sea. Once the revolution starts, there is no way to stop it. The churned waters immediately fill in the furrow made by the revolutionary plow, so the revolution continues forever and leaves disaster in its wake. Bolivar has been described as the George Washington of South America, but unlike our nation's first president, he died an exhausted and disillusioned idealist. Some months before his death, Bolivar wrote, There is no good faith in Latin America nor among the nations of Latin America. Treaties are scraps of paper. Constitutions? Printed matter. Elections? Battles. Freedom? Anarchy. And life? A torment. Those who believe that chaos and revolutionary tactics to tear down the existing system will net great benefits are fooling themselves. Civilizations do not arise from the flames of chaos. The chaos continues unabated until the old revolutionaries are done away with and a new, more tyrannical group of chaos makers take over. When they fail, there's another group waiting in the wings. What begins with high ideals often ends with blood running in the streets. As I write this, there are riots in some of our nation's largest cities. Businesses have been looted and burned to the ground, police officers shot and killed and there have been calls for the government of the United States to be dismantled. Secular man has been appointed to be the new foundational standard of governance. The French Revolution and How Not to Build a Civilization The assumption among the revolutionaries is that things will get better if America falls apart. When this happens, so the argument goes, the people will rise and throw off their oppressors, as they did during the French Russian, and Cuban revolutions. The French Revolution, celebrated in France and often compared to our war for independence, is a perfect example of how not to build a civilization with a lasting moral foundation. The American Revolution was not a revolution, but a war for independence. There was no uprising of the people, but a joining of 13 individual colonial governments with their constitutions to defend their sovereignty and their Christian moral base. The murdering mobs that attacked the nearly empty Bastille, at the time of the siege there were only seven non-political prisoners, believed their actions were for a better France, similar to what today's political revolutionaries have in mind. The storming of the Bastille was a catalyst for what became known as the Reign of Terror. French society underwent an epic transformation as feudal, aristocratic, and religious privileges evaporated under a sustained assault from the left-wing political groups and the masses in the streets. How bad was it? Internally, popular sentiments by some of the nation's most perverse social theorists radicalized the revolutionary fervor, culminating in the rise of Maximilien Robespierre and the Jacobins and the virtual dictatorship by the Committee of Public Safety during the Reign of Terror 
from 1793 until 1794, when between 16,000 and 40,000 people were killed. Did you get that? Between 16,000 and 40,000 French citizens were killed for a better France. Consider the following. Ordered by the king, Louis XVI, to surrender, more than 600 Swiss guards were savagely murdered. The mobs ripped them to shreds and mutilated their corpses. Women, lost to all sense of shame, said one surviving witness, were committing the most indecent mutilations on the dead bodies from which they tore pieces of flesh and carried them off in triumph. Children played kickball with the guards' heads. Every living thing in the Tuileries, the royal palace in Paris, was butchered or thrown from the windows by hooligans. Women were raped before being hacked to death. The Jacobin Club demanded that the piles of rotting, defiled corpses surrounding the Tuileries be left to putrefy in the streets for days afterward as a warning to the people of the power of the extreme left. This bestial attack, it was later decreed, would be celebrated every year as the festival of the unity and indivisibility of the Republic. It would be as if families across America delighted in the annual TV special, A Manson Family Christmas. In time, the supposedly just cause of the revolutionary mobs got out of hand, and people began to notice the road the revolution was taking them. What began as a way to eradicate corruption among the ruling classes of civil governing officials and religious hierarchy spilled over to the general population. During the Reign of Terror, extreme efforts of de-Christianization ensued, including the imprisonment and massacre of priests and destruction of churches and religious images throughout France. An effort was made to replace the Catholic Church altogether with civic festivals replacing religious ones. The establishment of the cult of reason was the final step of radical de-Christianization. It was at this point that the people became disillusioned with the revolutionary ways of the radicals, but not before more atrocities were committed for the supposed salvation of the people and the nation. As revolutionary leader Jean-Paul Marat wrote in a newspaper in 1792, Let the blood of the traitors flow. That is the only way to save the country. And it did, as Marat's followers attacked and butchered hundreds of enemies of the revolution. Two bonfires were constructed to cremate the mutilated corpses. The gutters ran red with blood. Don't say it can't happen here. The people in France, Russia, Cuba, China, and Venezuela probably said the same thing. One of the first things that these revolutions do is attack the prevailing religion. We're seeing this happen in the United States. There's been a steady history of removing anything related to God and the Bible from our culture. The Bible was relegated to the church on Sunday, but even that's under attack. Some want the Bible banned for what it says about same-sex sexuality. There is no way to appease the anarchists. They want it all. Left-wing radicals burn Bibles, assault and murder policemen and civilians, set fire to courthouses, vandalize and loot all manner of businesses, Roger Kimball writes. The clips of the savages burning Bibles put me in mind of Heinrich Heine's solemn observation that Dort wo man Bücher verbrennt, verbrennt man auch am Ende Menschen. Wherever people burn books, 
they also end up burning men. Man is not the measure of all things. The solution to social and political upheaval is found in the way God has structured government by declaring that government is not synonymous with politics. What we are seeing today was spawned centuries ago. Christianity was shoved to the sidelines when advocates of what has been described as the Enlightenment claimed that no authority could sit in judgment on human reason, that man's reason and experience were the measure of all things. As is typical of shifts away from a Christian worldview, this sterile worldview was not satisfying, so as with all failing worldviews, a new paradigm was constructed to offer purpose for those needing worldview purpose for their beliefs and actions. Andrew Sandlin offers a summary of Romanticism, the then-new ideological savior from the moral sterility of the Enlightenment. This rationalism of the Enlightenment produced a cold, sterile world, and in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, Romanticism emerged as a reaction. Romanticism didn't like the idea of universal or shared reason and experience. It wanted to champion what was unique about every individual, not what humanity had in common. Romanticism is the first wholesale movement of individualism in world history. The really important thing was individual thinking, feelings, emotions, desires, and interpretations, not what all humans shared. Historians call this the inward turn. It's a turning point in Western history. Objective truth outside us is no longer important, whether that truth is God or the Bible or the church or creeds or shared human reason or experience. The struggle for meaning would come to an end in 1859 with the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life since humans are products of chance plus matter plus time. Now there's a worldview to topple, since it was the engine of so much misery in the 20th century, the same misery that we will see again if the cancel culture crowd gets its way. Christians need to understand that there is a competing worldview in the United States that sees Christianity as the enemy that must be eradicated. Men and women will be truly free when they are free from God. While Christians are portrayed as a threat to life and liberty, it's the secularists who are America's greatest threat, since a matter-only existence has no basis on which hope can be offered. No one really counts if everyone is a law unto himself. Me, myself, and I is the operating ethic. An article appearing in Rolling Stone magazine titled The Crusaders shows the vitriol, anger, and pent-up hostility of the secularists. If these people ever get in power without any moral checks and balances, heads will roll as they did during the French Revolution. They are the philosophical descendants of Robespierre, the voice of virtue, who thought the guillotine was France's salvation. David Chilton writes the following in Part 1 of his three-part review summary of James H. Billington's book, fire in the minds of men. In many ways, the French Revolution set precedents for those which were created in its image. Beginning ostensibly as a revolution for democracy, in the name of the people, 
It soon revealed the irresistible drive towards centralization that is the hallmark of modern revolutions. The reign of terror, that eminently logical application of the Enlightenment, claimed 40,000 victims in 1793-94, but that was only to be the beginning. For, as the revolution progressed, its leaders calmly calculated the number of citizens who would have to be exterminated, laying elaborate plans for the methodical liquidation of two-thirds of the population, more than 16 million people. See Nesta Webster, The French Revolution, A Study in Democracy, 1919, pages 423 to 429. The search for the revolutionary simplicity required the destruction of the complex fabric of Christian civilization, the dissolution of the many estates into one unitary state, the substitution of slogans for thought. Tied to belief in secular salvation, radical simplicity led to violence, a ritual of blood atonement providing deliverance through destruction. Compare Otto Scott, Robespierre, The Voice of Virtue, 1974. Claims are often made that no government is the best government. That is, no civil government is the ultimate goal in pursuit of a just society. Some form of civil or uncivil government is inevitable. Gary North makes an excellent point. The anarcho-capitalist rejects all forms of civil government. He can point to every kind of tax as distorting the free market. He sees the free market as legitimately autonomous. But then come the problems of violence and sin. How can these be predictably restrained? The biblical answer is government, including civil government. In an anarcho-capitalist world of profit-seeking private armies, the result is the warlord society. Militarily successful private armies will always seek to establish their monopolistic rule by killing the competition, literally. Civil governments always reappear. They are one of God's four ordained systems of government, self-government, church government, family government, and civil government. All four are sealed by an oath. All four involve sanctions. Christians cannot legitimately adopt the libertarian quest to establish a world devoid of civil government. Sin mandates civil government and civil sanctions. The right of civil rulers to impose physical punishments is affirmed clearly by Paul in Acts 25. He affirms in Romans 13 the legitimacy of civil government among other legitimate governments. He says that rulers are ordained by God as his ministers. This is powerful language. It invokes the authority of God on behalf of the state. If Paul is correct, then anarcho-capitalism is incorrect. There is no way around this. The Bible lays out a moral standard for the individual in self-government, the family in family government, the church in ecclesiastical government, and various jurisdictional levels in civil government, country, state, and national. James Orr ended his 1897 lecture series published as The Progress of Dogma with these challenging words. That task is to bring Christianity to bear as an applied power on the life and conditions of society, to set itself as it has never yet done to master the meaning of the mind of Christ and to achieve the translation of that mind into the whole practical life of the age into laws 
institutions, commerce, literature, art, into domestic, civil, social, and political relations, into national and international doings in this sense to bring in the kingdom of God among men. I look to the twentieth century to be an era of Christian ethic even more than of Christian theology. With God on our side, history behind us, and the unchanging needs of the human heart to appeal to, we need tremble for the future of neither. Restoring the foundation of civilization is a call to realize Orr's challenge. In the end, it's God's government or chaos.